Well, welcome to uni, or welcome back to uni, as the case may be. Uh, For those of you who are returning, it's great to see some familiar faces. I was commenting to somebody uh, just before as they came in. You know those kind of movie sequels where they're always about a team, like a sports team, and the second movie, the first five minutes, it's like one by one, they all walk into the room. It's just been really nice to kind of see the group get back together. Really exciting to see so many more new faces as well. We really hope that you find a home here at the Christian Union. Uh, A little bit about me. My name is Matt. I have the great privilege of serving the CU by leading the staff team here on campus. Uh, The student group and the staff team come together in partnership uh, so that we can do what Seamus told us just before, is what we do, uh, to proclaim Jesus on campus. Uh, And as part of my role here, I get to teach the Bible, which is a great privilege, uh, and I'm really excited to do so. Uh, But because it's God's word and not man's word, we need his help to understand it and put it into practice. So how about I pray for us as we begin? Our Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you have seen fit to reveal yourself to us in the person of your Son and in your word, the Bible. We pray now that as we read it, we'll hear it not as the words of men, but as the words of God, and that it will change the way that we view and live in the world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I brought something for show and tell today. Uh, It's a bit of a... No, it's not a tradition. I'm starting it today. Hopefully, we'll have some more show and tell um, as the time goes on. It's a book, and it looks like this. Hope you're impressed. Uh, This is what's called a biblical commentary. Uh, It's a book that seeks to explain a section of the Bible. Uh, In this case, it's the book of Hebrews, which is about that thin. It's this thick. There's a lot of stuff going on inside of it. The reason I'm showing it to you is because it's probably one of the most valuable things that I own. Now, a book like this probably goes for about 60 bucks in a Christian bookstore. Maybe you get it cheaper if you go online. But something happened about eight years ago for a whole bunch of legal and political reasons, and all existing copies of this book were pulled from the shelf and pulped, completely gone. Now, this happens to be the best-rated book on Hebrews in existence, and so overnight this book went from about $60 to $400 in worth. Now, do you want to know how I got my copy? I was walking through a library and I saw a box of free books and I looked inside and I knew what I saw. And so I grabbed it and I held it to my chest and I was just like, I've got one and I know how much it's worth. But then I opened the cover and it's signed by the author. (laughs) $800. Now, there are plenty of stories like this floating around. You can skim through the internet. You can find a whole bunch of things. Uh, This is one of them. This is a chess piece. Somebody bought it in 1964 for $6. They took it to evaluation, $1.2 million. It's insane. And that thing probably just lived in a drawer, probably just sat on a shelf somewhere. But I can guarantee you, once they round out the true worth of what that thing was, it went from the drawer and went straight into the safe. Now, this semester at the Christian Union's Bible Talks, we'll be working through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And what Paul wants us to know is the value of God's blessings in Christ. Uh, He said he writes to the Ephesians, uh, Ephesus was a city in a place called Asia Minor. Uh, You can see it there kind of up the north of the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, We don't know whether the letter was written directly to Ephesus and the Ephesus alone or whether it went to the surrounding regions as well. Paul never tells us. But the thing that he does tell us is this. 2,000 years ago, something massive happened to a bunch of people in Asia Minor that made them rich overnight. And it wasn't the pulping of a book. 
wasn't the valuation of a chess piece. They became Christians. He says to them there, and if you've got your Bibles, this is the time to refer back to them in verse 13. You also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. What he says to them is this, your inclusion in Christ means that you now possess the most valuable thing a human being could ever possess, salvation and life with God as one of his people. He tells them actually in verse 3, and this is the summary sentence of the passage and the one that you want to pay attention to for the rest of the time that we're together. He says in verse 3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And he writes this there and he says to the Ephesian believers, you are blessed and I want you to know about it. And so today it's pretty straightforward. We've only got two headings. They're there in the outline that you would have received as you came in. Uh, And the first is this, what God has done in the lives of believers. Uh, It's basically looking at verses 3 to 14. Uh, To get us ready for that, I've got a question for you. Uh, When was the last time you walked into a candy store? Might have been recently, might have been when you were a younger kid, depends how fast or how unwillingly you grew up. But you know the feeling, right? You walk through the door and you stop. You only get to step in because all around you, on all sides, on all walls, from the floor to the ceiling, is just coloured confectionery of all stripes and types. And you have this moment where you start to salivate, and the kid behind you is trying to push in through the door as well, but you're just taking it all in. And then you go, oh no, I do not have enough time or money to eat everything in this shop. I will never get to enjoy what I'm seeing before me. And that feeling, that tension of ultimate excitement and frustration, I want you to hold on to that tension because that's exactly what we're about to experience when we read this passage of Scripture. It is one of the most densely worded descriptions of what God has done in the life of Christians. It begins at a point well before the world was created. It extends all the way through to the present, all the way into a distant point in the future where the world ends and Christ returns. It details the work of the Trinity, the way that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit work together to bring people to faith. It mentions topics like adoption and redemption and sovereignty and union and predestination and the Holy Spirit. All of these things people have written entire books on. And so as we approach this candy store of a passage, we need to appreciate that we cannot do justice to just how rich it is. But what I'm hoping to do this morning is just cut the surface a bit and hopefully make some observations that can help us just taste what it is that Paul is saying to us believers. And I think he says three things about the blessings that we receive in Christ that help us grasp just what it is that God does in the lives of believers. Three things. And the first one is this. He tells us that the blessings are spiritual Uh, You see it there again in verse 3, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. So what that tells us is that the things that God gives us are of a spiritual nature. And it's important to acknowledge this right up front, I think, because typically when we hear the word bless, we think of that sun picture on Instagram with the hashtag, uh, and our tendency is almost exclusively to think in terms of material circumstance. When we have money, when we have job, when we have positive relationships, when everything's going our way... 
That's when we think we're blessed. Now, that sort of thinking, it's not quite wrong. In fact, through most of the Bible, material blessing is the primary sign of the Lord's favour, especially under the nation of Israel. And ultimately, we discover in the Bible that the blessing that the gospel holds out for us is an eternal physical life in a new world freed from evil and suffering. And that is a distinctly material reality. But Paul tells us that to think that way is not to think wrongly, but to think too small. Because now that Jesus has come, even that material blessing is grounded in something far more significant and spiritual in nature. Something that we ought to hold as more valuable than everything else. And we know that this is the case because of what Paul praises God for. Skim your eyes down, say verses 3 to 10. Look at the types of blessings he lists. Each blessing shows us a spiritual need. And it's not for a new car or a stable job or a boyfriend or a girlfriend. What's at stake here is our eternal destiny. And you can see that if you invert the blessing. So as we kind of skim through, kind of like starting at verse 4, instead of being chosen, our base state would be rejection. Instead of adoption to sonship, it's estrangement. Instead of redemption, this is verse 7, it's slavery. Instead of forgiveness, it's judgment. Verse 8, instead of wisdom and understanding and knowledge, it's ignorance and the inability to find our way back to God. You see, Paul does not care about your bank balance or your good health because these things pale in significance to what we truly need. And what we truly need is the salvation that God provides. You see, being chosen by God before the creation of the world, it is so much more certain and more meaningful than being chosen by a guy or a girl. Being adopted as the son of God is better than having the happiest family on earth. Being redeemed by God, forgiven of your sins, is of greater value than any positive bank balance that you could ever have. I mean, I showed you this before, kind of precious. Not really. It's a book. This is a watch. I have a car. I don't have a mansion, but hey, it's a mansion. If you have those things, you'll die. And then you won't have any of them. You can't take it with you. But to be marked by the Spirit of God, like we saw in verse 13, and guaranteed an inheritance that extends into an eternal future, a stake in the new creation after we die, well, that's of unsurpassing worth. And so Paul wants us to know the true value of what we have as Christians. And it's not the new car, it's not your good health. It's found in the blessing of a right relationship with God. The blessings are spiritual. That's the first observation. The second is this. The blessings are extravagant. If you think of our spiritual problem, our need for forgiveness, our need to be right with God like a debt, what we see here in this passage is it's not as if God just pays off the debt and kind of brings our bank balance back to zero. He fills it with millions upon millions of dollars. Have a look at some of the language that Paul uses. He chooses us personally and individually before he even created us. He had you in his mind. He set out to take you and redeem you and make you his. In love, verse 5, he predestines us for adoption to sonship. That's a formal term. It applies both to men and to women. And what it's saying is that in the grand cosmic scheme of things, there is a creator and a creature, and the creator creates, and the creature serves and worships, but there's a distance. In the same way that there's a distance when a subject bows to a king. They're not the same thing. And what God is saying is, I'm bringing you onto that same level playing field. 
Now, Paul Keating, you probably haven't heard of this guy. He was a former Australian Prime Minister, and he is remembered for one thing. When he met the Queen, he hugged her. You don't do that to the Queen. She's different from you. I don't even think her own family hugged her. He acted beyond his station. And yet by adopting us as his children, God gives us a level of access that we could never dream of. And he does this, we see there still in verse 5, in accordance with his pleasure and will. It's not voluntary. He's not arm wrestled into it by Jesus. He's not forced to do any of this. Verse 6, he freely gives us his glorious grace. The grace which we see there in verse 8, he lavishes upon us. This is rich language. And so the things that we see here, the, the things that we receive in Christ as Christians, they're not just the bare necessities. They're the overflowing generosity of a God who delights in every single one of us. And that's why the passage takes the form that it does, I think. Now, before I went into Christian ministry, I was an engineer, uh, and contrary to popular belief, I am literate. Uh, <laughs> but that said, I really like dot points. And I like dot points because they communicate information concisely and in a readable way. But that's not what Paul does here. That's not how he writes. He almost writes like a teenage girl writing a love letter. He layers on a whole host of astounding and unbelievable things that God has done for believers. And he strings them all together in one long sentence to overwhelm us with them. And he's chosen, adopted, redeemed, forgiven, included in God's plan, given an inheritance, predestined. And Paul's point here is not to open a giant can of theological worms. He does it this way because these aren't isolated theological truths. He does it to move us. These are truths that we have as Christians experienced. And he tells us about them in such a way because he wants to overwhelm us with them that we might praise the God who gave them to us. And you see that in the passage, don't you? It's popped up a couple of times and repetition usually tells you something's important in the Bible. We see it there in verse 6. It's to the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 12, it's so that we might be to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, we've been made God's possession to the praise of his glory. And so if there is anything else that we leave here today thinking, it can't be that God's blessings aren't a big deal, because they are. In fact, according to Paul, they are the most significant thing that has happened to these people. And if you're a believer, it is the most significant thing that has ever happened to you. God has claimed you as his own, made you his own child, promised you an inheritance, overwhelmed you with the riches of what it is to be in his family. And I just want to say that as you start university, it is going to be so easy to forget that, to be convinced that that's not true. You have to deal with essays. You have to deal with assignments. The engineers will have to work out how to write in full sentences. There will be challenges. There will be people with voices coming in and telling you that these things aren't true. But Paul's point is simple. It may not look like it. It may not feel like it. But if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, regardless of your circumstance, you are one of the richest people on earth because of what God has given you. And because of that, that should lead us to praise. So the blessings, they're extravagant. Third, third observation, and this is the key one. The blessings are all in Christ. Again, we're told in verse 3, our summary verse, God the Father has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. 
And just in case we missed it, in verses 4 to 14, he repeats it again and again. So, a brief activity for you. I want you to introduce yourself to the person next to you. And then together, I want you to count how many times Paul uses some variant of in Christ in verses 3 to 14. Got the question up there on the board. I'll give you about 30 seconds. I'm sure you guys can count. Let's have a go. Alrighty. I'm starting to hear things die down. I'm sorry if that wasn't enough time. How'd you guys go? Uh, raise your hands if you've got five or more. Six, seven, eight, nine. Did anyone have higher than nine? Shout out a number for me. Ten. Um, here's what I got. I counted ten. Um, I didn't include the through Christ, though, and there are two of them there. Um, adoption of sonship through Jesus Christ and redemption through his blood. Um, trick question, there are actually 12. Some of them aren't translated because the grammar just gets so goofy and wacky that they're just like, we get the point, we'll just move on. And Paul's point here is simple but profound. Everything you see up there on the screen, those extravagant spiritual blessings, they can only be received if you are in Christ. Now, what does that mean? Well, let's think about it literally. Say you head to an airport and you hop in a plane. Whatever happens to that plane happens to you, right? It takes off, you take off. It experiences turbulence, you'll experience turbulence. When it goes, it goes. If it crashes, you crash. If it lands, you land. And what Paul is saying here is that unless we are in Christ, spiritually united to him, we won't find blessing. And so if there's a plane and it's heading to London and you aren't on it, you aren't getting to London. Poor analogy, because Salvation London, they don't really mix, do they? We need a better place. The only place I can think of is Perth, but you're already here, so it doesn't really work. But, but, but Paul says there's only one plane to London. And therefore, you need to be on that plane if you want to get there. There aren't multiple planes and multiple flight paths that lead you to God. You might be genuine and authentic in what you believe, but if you aren't in Christ, none of that matters. If you aren't in Christ, the blessings that he holds out for you in your precious humanity can't be received. Now, why would God do that? Why wouldn't he just fill the airport with tons of planes and maximise the number of people who can experience his blessing. Well, the answer that Paul gives is something like this. He actually tells us that God is doing something far greater in scope than just what he's doing in the believers. You see, what God is doing in the Ephesians is just the tip of the iceberg. It's part of a greater plan that God is bringing to fruition in Christ. And this brings us to our second heading for today, what God is doing in Christ. You see, all of these blessings that we've been seeing, they have a trajectory They're heading somewhere, and we see it there in verses 9 to 10. Have a look there in your Bibles. It says, He made known to us, this is God, made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment. And here's the plan, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. What Paul is talking about here is nothing less than the reunification of the entire creation. That is God's plan. 
You see, the world that God made has been devastated by the curse of sin and death. And we've already seen it in the case of humanity, haven't we? We need redemption. We need the forgiveness of sins. But according to this verse, it extends far beyond the Ephesians or the people in this room or the people in this city. God is uniting all things, not just on earth, but what does it say there? In heaven too. As we keep reading through the book of Ephesians, we'll see that that includes the spiritual beings in the heavenly realms. That includes the physical creation with its earthquakes and its storms. We see that in Romans 8. Everything that sin has ruined and shattered, God intends to restore by bringing it all back together again. And he's going to do that by uniting all of those things under one head, who is Jesus. And what this passage tells us as it rolls out the blessings that he gives to the Ephesians is that he has already been doing that in their lives. It's evidence that he is bringing unity back to his creation through Jesus under his head. Now, two things to know about Jesus. They're always the same two things. He died and he rose again. And those two things provide the basis, become the basis through which God achieves all of that great work. We see the death there in verse 7. We're told that we're redeemed through his blood. That's the thing that gives us our forgiveness. It's Jesus' death on the cross. It's the bearing of God's wrath instead of us on the cross, the absorbing of the punishment of our selfish and individualistic living so that instead we might be reunited to the God who made us. But Jesus' death in itself isn't sufficient to unite all creation under one head. You need a head. And so that's why Jesus was raised to life again. He was raised to rule, raised to rule the united creation. And you see it there in verse 20. What does God do to Jesus? He raises Christ from the dead and seats him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet. And that includes, we keep reading, the church, his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And so when Paul writes to the Ephesians, what we are capturing is a moment in time, a moment in the middle of this grand cosmic plan of God to reunite the creation under his son, Jesus. Because one day Jesus will return and he will enact the authority that God has given him. And then at that point, all parts of the creation will be subjugated under his rule, whether they like it or not. And the reason that we've captured it in a moment of time and we exist in that same moment of time, even though it's been 2000 years since the Ephesians came to faith, is because God wants more and more people to willingly come under the rule of Christ. He wants them to hop on the plane. He's delayed the flight so that we can head to where he wants us to head. And if we don't understand that, if we don't understand God's great plan, the fact that it is the reunification of the entire creation under the lordship of Jesus, if we don't get that, then we will misunderstand the blessings that he gives us as Christians. Your faith is not about you. It's about Jesus. We are the recipients of extravagant blessing. But the fact that it is in Christ tells us something about the importance of Christ, doesn't it? And so even as Paul tells us what we have as recipients of unfathomable riches, he doesn't want our thoughts to terminate on us and our good fortune. 
and think that it's all about us, that we're pretty special because God chose me. He wants our thoughts to go further. He wants our thoughts to raise higher, to look beyond ourselves and our blessing to the one who gives them, to the one through whom they come. And that's why the Sears mission statement is what it is, proclaiming Jesus Christ, the centre of the story, the saviour of the story, on this campus to present everyone mature in him. Because what we see from this passage is that God is not in the business of rejection. He's in the business of restoration. And just as he chose the Ephesians before the creation of the world, that they would one day be holy and blameless before him, so he chooses every other believer to be the same, to cast off their life of sin and instead live for the Lord Jesus, who now rules not just their life, but every life. And what we want more than anything here at the CU is that people will come to know the Lord Jesus as their Lord and be united to him as part of that great cosmic restoration. And in doing so, receive the blessings that we ourselves have received because they are pretty, fritting darn good. It's great. Now, that's big, right? That, that, that's like, that's, that's mind-blowingly big. Like, how do you comprehend that? How do you process that? Like I said, we're walking into a candy store. We can only smell the sugar, let alone taste it. You see, what God is doing in Christ and in believers is of such scope and such depth that you're just not going to grasp it in just one talk, are you? I think it's the project of a lifetime. It requires time and dedication and the help of God. And that's why Paul doesn't just stop at describing the smorgasbord of blessing that the Ephesians have received in Christ. He goes on after giving them the list of blessings and he prays for them. Have a look in verse 17. What does he pray for them? I think it's really surprising. The, Lord, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, he prays, the glorious Father, may he give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. And that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. It's surprising because he just told them all of these things. And yet it seems that to grasp them fully, properly, understand them more richly, we need God's help to do so. And our prayer at the CU for you and for each other is the same. We want to find out what it is that God is doing in the Lord Jesus and what he has done for us so that it can abound to his praise. So my invitation for you today, our invitation for you today is this. Will you come and join us at the Christian Union on campus? And will you spend more than one day in the candy store? Come and learn about what it is that God has done in Jesus. Like I said before, this passage is so rich with information, so rich with theological implications for your life, that it is impossible to do anything other than sample some of what it says at this point in time. But maybe, just maybe, over the course of your time at university, you can eat more than just the free sample, and you can deepen your understanding of what it is that God has done in you, what it is that God could do in you if you come to him in repentance and faith. And maybe, just maybe, as you do that, you'll become so staggered by his generous grace that you'll want to see as many other people have those blessings as well. That's our invitation. Let me give you a bit of an on-ramp uh, as to how you might do that. 
There are a couple of ways of doing that at the CU. Seamus has already given us a bit of a spiel, uh, what the CU is about, what we do, why we do it. But I want to draw your attention to the screen and show you the CU greenhouse. Uh, this is new this year and hopefully will become a tool for us understanding what it is that we do here on campus. Uh, because what it is we do here, we are kind of um, trying to attempt to explain um, the sort of things that happen to us as students on campus as we proclaim Jesus. Uh, and they're valid for whether or not you're a Christian or not at this stage in your life, whether you're already a one or that you're exploring the faith. Uh, and the thing to understand is that we kind of view ourselves like a, an incubator, a greenhouse. That as you come and join our community, we have custom built it to help you grow as a Christian and send your roots down deep. So that when you get to the end of your uni degree and you leave here, you will be mature, fully understanding, uh, at least insofar as you can, what Christ has done, what God is doing in Christ, and then take it to the world. Uh, we're not a replacement for church. We come alongside the church uh, and, and we help them do what it is that they don't have the time or the resources or the skills to do. And we do that so that you can go back to your churches equipped to serve them better and benefit the kingdom uh, whatever it is you end up doing. And so in our minds, we're not an either-or. We're kind of a both-and. We, we work alongside the church, and we get a nice little kind of feedback system going that benefits everybody. Now, we do a lot of things at the CU, uh, and not every CUer does them all, but we have three things that I want to draw your attention to just as we close in the greenhouse. Three things that we think are the basic soil to help dig your roots down deep and grow here at the Christian Union. And they're there in the big yellow arrow up the top. Uh, Campus Bible Talk, Small Groups, and MYC, the first years have it there because they're special. First one, the Campus Bible Talk. That's what this is. This is the main gathering at the CU, and it's where we together sit under the Word of God. We let it teach us. We let it challenge us. The second is our small group Bible studies. That's where we gather in small groups. It's where we build relationships, and we learn to read the Bible for ourselves and in community in greater depth and skill. And then the third one is MYC. It's our mid-year conference. It's where all the university Christian unions across Perth gather for five days of solid Bible teaching. Now, that's a lot to take in, uh, but I think that if you can commit yourself to those three things, it's two hours a week and then a week of your never-ending holidays. If you commit yourselves to those things, I think you're going to see some real growth here as part of our community. If you want to go turbo, be our guest. That'll be up on the wall in the CU room. You can examine it more closely and throw yourself in. But my challenge to you is this as we close. Whatever it is that you do on campus, make sure that it reflects the things of true value and it commits to growing in the knowledge of those things for the sake of Christ who gave them all to you.